We are turning again to Philippians chapter 2, and I want to pick up the reading from verse 5. We're not going to focus on that little section that we looked at last week. We're going to focus from verse 12 down, but let's pick up the reading again in verse 5 of chapter 2. So Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. As we open our Bibles, we know that this is God's Word, so we can trust it completely. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. And we thank God for His Word. Please do keep your Bibles open as we keep referring to this passage. We're going to focus on verse 12 through 18 tonight. And what we want to think about it under this title is living as bright disciples, living as bright disciples. How can we follow Jesus? How can we live for Jesus in this world that is often so dark, or as this passage refers to, as a crooked and a twisted generation? So a question for you. Do you think you are important as you come along here Sunday after Sunday? Do you think you are important? Do you think what happens in this place is important that you play your part in that? Or it actually all just happens up here? Whoever's at the front, whoever happens to be leading, whoever's on the praise group, maybe whoever's on the door, they are the important people. Everyone else, well, we don't really matter. I want to tell you tonight that that's a lie. And that's a lie that the enemy often tells us. And he uses to try and make us a people who are not active, a people who are not participating in worship. But instead, we often refer to it as church, a church family. Whenever we gather into this place, we all come to worship. We are all important. So what we do in here matters. It has a huge impact upon what happens out in the world. And so tonight, we cannot expect the world to flock here to hear the gospel if those who claim to be changed by the gospel in here just look like the world. If we just look like the world, then we don't offer an alternative tonight. So what should church be like? 
You see, church is God's plan for reaching the world. It's his strategy. It's infinitely important to him that we understand this. And we want to understand it through this lens tonight in Philippians 2, verses 12 through to 18. Because this little church plant, Paul's writing to this little church plant, and he's trying to help them understand who they are and how they must operate. So what should church be like? We've kind of thought about this a little bit so far in Philippians, but here's a quote. I love this quote from Francis Schaeffer. He says this. He says, if the church is what it should be, young people will be there, but they will not just be there. They will be there with the blowing of horns, with the clashing of high-sounding cymbals, and they will come dancing with flowers in their hair. What's he saying? He's saying that if we truly worship Jesus the way we're meant to in a, in a meeting house or together, there will be true joy, there will be true worship, there will be heart change. The church will be a wonderful place. Now, whenever we get up on a Sunday morning, that we will actually truly say and believe it, that we love Sundays because we get to come into this place and we get to hear His, His praises being lifted we get to pray with one another, we get to see one another, even if it's behind a mask, that we get to be close to one another, encourage one another, sit under the sound of the word. I think we all want to be in a church like this that Francis Schaeffer describes. We want this type of church, but of course the problem is getting it. How do we get there? How can we get a church like this? Well, our gospel doctrine, what we believe on paper, what we hear in our minds, must add up with who we really are. What we say and what we do must match up. So whenever we talk about the love of Jesus in this place, and if we all come along and we're all crooked people and twisted people, that doesn't marry up. Or if we talk about having mercy or being people of forgiveness, and yet we come along here and we hate one another, and we point faults in one another, then the two don't marry up. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture must marry. It's understanding the gospel, and it's living it out. And therefore, we'll be an authentic community of believers, living to serve Jesus. So some might say this isn't rocket science. If we want to have this type of church, it's not, it's not all that difficult. We just got to live for Jesus, have the mind of Jesus that we read about here in chapter 2, verse 5, have his mind among you. And so we can then be like what Paul describes in this passage as lights as a city set on a hill, as a church set on a hill, that it's bright and it attracts people to it. A church where all ages come with great joy because we, whenever we gather into this place, we'll say, here is the answer. This is the answer. The gospel is the answer that I've been looking for. And so whenever the people who live in the streets around here come into this place, they will say, this is it. This is what we've been made for. Whenever we gather into here or into the hall, this is it. This is the beautiful, sweet community of God that we've been made to experience. And we will see people coming into this place and filling our pews. Friends, this is what fires me up. I've been thinking about this all week. I've been loving this passage all week. Coming into this place seeing people that don't look like us worshiping Jesus, people who don't have the, the same sort of names as what we have, who don't come from the same backgrounds as us, who have maybe committed different sins in us, sitting here, sitting in the pews, 
seeing their faces light up as they're able to sing praise to God, having their hearts transformed. Isn't that what we want in here? See people seeing Jesus, transformed by His wonderful grace. Well, how do we get there? Well, here's a summary sentence for where we're going tonight, working through this passage. We've got to work out what God is working in us. We've got to work that out, work out what God is working in us so that we may be lights in the darkness, but watch out because grumbling and questioning will ruin it all. So work out what God is working in so that you may be lights, but be careful because grumbling and questioning will ruin it all. So we're going to break that down into smaller chunks. First of all, work out what God is working in. Work out what God is working in. Here's a little illustration. The, the craftsman, the master craftsman, he goes into his workshop and he has a huge lump of wood. Sometimes you see this on different shows, these makeup shows that we have on BBC One and all the rest of it, where they get unbelievable items and they can totally transform them. Well, this craftsman, he gets this huge lump of a tree, big piece of wood, and he takes his chainsaw and he starts whacking bits off it and he hacks bits off here and off there. And then comes out the hammer and the chisel. Tap, tap, tap. And he slowly hammers, and he slowly chisels away. Tap, tap, tap. This sort of piece of wood starting to take shape a little bit, and he planes a wee bit here, he sands a wee bit there. Tap, tap, tap. And then he stands back, and he looks at it. He assesses it. And with a little bit of patience and a little bit of willpower, he takes out another groove here, a little edge there. He sands a little bit more there. And with time, his work pays off. And a masterpiece is created. And so he brings his friends all around and he says, you know that thing I've been working on for the past number of weeks or past number of months? You know that, that piece of wood that I've been working on? Well, come here and see it. And he reveals his work. And it's a beautiful candlestick holder. It's a beautiful piece. And he says, look, this, this is so exciting. This is, it's so beautiful. Why? It's practical as well because it gets to bring light to lots of different people. There will be people in darkness. And you know what? You can use this thing. It's actually practical. Please take this and use it. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to explain for us here. That God is the craftsman and he's tap, tap, tapping away at our life. That he's working in us and we are the pieces of wood. It's incredible. That God, the God of this universe, the infinite God is crafting his people, molding and shaping his people to shine his lights. So we need to know this, that God is working in us. Our God is not dead. He's alive in each one of us. And so verse 13, the God of heaven and the God of earth indwells his people. This is something that we have seen right from the beginning of Scripture. Right in the garden, God comes and He searches for Adam and Eve so He can be with His people. He's a God of presence. And then we go into Exodus, and what does He do? He, he speaks to His people. He says, I will dwell with you. I will be with you. And He shows them this through the tabernacle, God dwelling with His people right in their midst. Then the temple, He says, again, I'm going to show you that I'm going to dwell with you. So in the Old Testament, it's this physical dwelling. And then for us New Testament people, it's a spiritual dwelling. 
We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. He dwells in us. And so for each of us tonight, God redeems us in order to what? In order to inhabit us. He inhabits our very bodies. And, and you know, some people talk about this. You need this higher spiritual experience that you need to realize who you are and that you're, you're really living on a second level Christianity until you experience this, this almost like a second blessing. Well, that's nonsense tonight. You are who you are the moment you are redeemed by God. He indwells your body. Ephesians 3, if you want to read it later on, the end of Ephesians 3, the entire Godhead indwells us. And so as He dwells in us, He works in us. And this is true tonight, no matter what our situation is. If you're struggling tonight in your faith, He's still working in you. And if you've grown cold tonight in your faith, He is still working in you. It's true for every child of His. He lives in you, and He works in you. He's carving and He's shaping you. Well, to do what? Well, look at it with me, to will and to work. Verse 13, God works in you to both will and work for His good pleasure. Chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, and so He will not give up on us. He works ceaselessly, effectually, and purposefully. Ceaselessly, effectually, and purposefully for his good pleasure. And he does it as a body of believers, so as our whole church family. He's working in us all collectively, and he's working in each one individually. To do what? What's he working in us for, John? What's he going to do with us? What's, what's the image? Are we going to be like this candlestick? What's the image? What's he going to do with us? Well, two things. To be conformed into Christ's likeness. Verse 12, see it. You keep walking in your obedience. It's to be like Jesus. Really simple. To become more and more obedient to God's will. And then to be conformed to God's purpose, second. Jesus must be exalted in our life. That's our purpose. Catechism tells us to enjoy Him, to glorify Him. That's what it's all about. So with this all in place, verse 12 comes. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See this verse. This verse has caused me great distress over many years. And the only way I can compare it to is this. In primary school, in primary school, in primary seven, we had a teacher called Mr. Gray. And Mr. Gray used to have these blue and red books, and they were mental arithmetic books, right? And every page in those books had different mental arithmetic tests, and I hated them, right? And I, I would, the day that I would see Mr. Gray walking in with the, the mental arithmetic books and these pages all photocopied out of it, I knew I was in trouble. And I knew that I was probably going to have to try and get an answer or two off one of my friends to try and make it through the test, right? And whenever I would read this verse, that's the, that's the image it used to conjure up in me. Work out your own salvation. It's like the, the greatest mathematical equation of all time. How are we meant to do this? Where do you start? Is it all about my efforts? Do I have to work out my own salvation? Do I have to try to come to some deeper technical understanding of the gospel? What is going on? And it used to stump me. 
And I knew, I knew it couldn't be any of the above. I knew that we can't save ourselves. I knew that we, we don't work for our salvation. So what is this? Well, this sometimes puzzling phrase simply means this. To work out the salvation that is in you. To work it out of you. To display it. To work at your obedience. What is in you, work it out. So just as Christ is obedient, verse 8, and just as we have been obedient, Paul says, keep being this. Don't just pay lip service to it, but actually be it. The Greek image here is really helpful. The Greek word conjures up this image. It conveys a garden, a garden that needs work. The weeds keep appearing. The hedges need cut. There's always work to be done. So let's just slow down for a moment. You saying tonight, John, that my salvation is not secure. Well, this is where it's really important for us to be really precise and careful about our justification and our sanctification, right? Our justification, our status before God is a done deal. It's secured by Jesus, nothing to do with our efforts. It's a legal proclamation about who we are. So we're content in our justification. But our sanctification, well, our sanctification, it's a lifelong process, a lifelong process of being made into Jesus' image, of being made holy. It's a lifelong process of coming into conformity with our legal status. So content in our justification, but we constant, we are constantly working in our sanctification and in our evangelism. So a couple of wee words, or little phrases that help us work this out. We are both justified and enduringly sinful. We are forgiven, but we're still flawed. We're utterly secure, but we've still got lots of work to do. And so we keep working in the garden. We keep killing the weeds of sin. We keep raking out the, the selfishness, the, the moss of selfishness that so easily grows. We keep working away at what it means to be a Christian. We work out our faith. Where needs attention in our lives? That little aspect of the garden that we've neglected for a while. Where are the nettles, the nasty nettles of sin growing tonight? And here's the thing. This is collective as well as individual. So a church, as a church, we don't just drift into the underland theme of where Paul's going here, of unity. We don't just drift into that. We drift out of unity. You don't drift into a dedicated, obedient life for Jesus. You drift away from it. And so he says, work it out. Work it out. What, that which is in you, work it out. And so we need to do this as a fellowship, as a church family. Where are the weeds of sin growing in our church family tonight? Where are the areas that we have neglected? What have we taken our eyes off? And so, friends, tonight, we need to know, whenever we come along here, we don't just sit in the pew idly watching everything that's happening, but we are active, each of us active. The Christian life is one of activity. It's not this little phrase that someone came up with, let go and let God. It's nonsense. We need to get stuck in. It's hard work. When we don't feel like reading the Bible, praying, whenever we don't feel like turning up the church, it's hard work. Whenever we don't want to go for that walk with someone from church, but by the sweat of our spiritual brow, we keep plugging away, obedience doesn't just happen. 
Well, then Paul moves on, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling, he says. No grumbling here. A little picture will come up. Some people will remember him, that little man on the screen. Some people will not remember him or know anything about him because you're too young. This is Victor Meldry from One Foot in the Grave, and he's just a typical man that liked to grumble a lot. But Paul here says, right, do all things without grumbling. Why? Because this is a concrete way. It's a practical way of showing that we've understood the verses just before, that we've understood what it means for God to work in us and for that to work out of us, for God to be in control of all things, to live as Christ and to die as gain. All of the letter so far impinges and, and has implications upon this. So what is grumbling? Well, grumbling is the hum, the hum of the fallen human heart. It is the hallmark of indwelling sin. Let me say that again. Grumbling is the hum of the fallen human heart, and it is the hallmark of indwelling sin. So Paul puts it right here, front and center, because he knows, he knows it's going to be a massive problem. And we know it's a massive problem. I know it's a massive problem in my own heart. And it's not just a problem that, that's maybe a sideline issue. Paul says this problem is huge because it can not only destroy the internal relationships in a church, but it can destroy the very witness of the gospel itself. Why? Well, because grumbling comes from a sinful heart. Friends, grumbling comes from an unchanged heart. An unchanged heart, Paul says in this letter, that is not content in Jesus, that is not experiencing the joy and the sweetness that he brings. To phrase it in other words, Paul uses it differently in 1 Corinthians 10 and 31. He says it in an inverted way. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Or for himself in this letter, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11 I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. So let's be very clear tonight what grumbling and question, questioning is not. It's not fake happiness, but it is deep contentment and joy. I don't want anyone here this evening or watching online or in the hall to get confused about this. Grumbling is not someone who is mourning or experiencing grief, or struggling with grief. Those are real emotions. It is not people who ask good and thoughtful and wise questions within the church family. But instead it's this. It's physical and spiritual complaining. It's the Victor Meldry, right? That nothing is ever right. You couldn't please this church member even if you tried. It's looking for problems. It's questioning every decision. It's negative and skeptical about being skeptical about everything. It's stirring up trouble. It's sowing seeds of discontentment. Did you hear what he said today? Did you see what she did? Can you believe their children are doing that? Grumblings, this, this rumbling, grumbling that lies just under the surface. For each of us tonight, friends, this is of utter importance because murmuring with other believers, grumbling with other church family members is a destructive assault upon the unity of the body of, the Christ, of Christ. Murmuring with other believers is a destructive assault upon the unity 
of the body of Christ. This is really serious tonight. And so Paul says, not just in church life, verse 14, but do all things. This is all of life, that you don't complain, that you don't have this complaining mindset, but instead you have the mind of Christ. We thought about last week, came and humbled himself. But we're so tempted to do this, aren't we? This is like the natural thing that happens in our hearts. I have to go and clean the windows. I don't want to go and clean the windows. We give off and we grumble about the traffic. We give off about such and such. We complain to others about others. Well, tonight we need to be quick to confess this because it's so serious. And we need to repent. And we need to run quickly and find joy and contentment in Jesus tonight. And the sad thing is that many of our churches in our land Many of our churches are dark places. They are not lights. See what it says? You be like lights. They are not lights. Why? Because there are places, their churches are full of grumblers and disputers who have hard hearts. And Paul says the gospel witness is at stake. So our last point, shine like stars. Shine like lights. Verse 15. This is our responsibility. You see, Paul's linking our, our holiness, our sanctification through to our evangelism. That church that we described right at the start, if we want that, we gotta, we got to put grumbling and disputes to death. we got to live for Jesus. And then we will shine. Whenever we love him and live for him, he will shine out of us. And those people that we want to fill our pews, the people that live around us, the people in our families, the people that don't look like us, they will see Jesus. They'll see him as sweet. And they'll come in. What's the problem? The problem is this world is twisted and it's a crooked generation. Look at verse 15. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they are. And so you need to be the alternative. The church must be the alternative. The very gospel is at stake. So Matthew McConaughey, here's a quote. We used Matthew McConaughey earlier in our series. Here's a quote from him again from his book. I think I wanted to use this tonight because it just sums up our generation. It sums up where they're at. It says this, I've been in this life for 50 years trying to work out its riddles for 42 and keeping diaries of clues to the riddle of the last 35. 35 years of realizing, remembering, recognizing, gathering and jotting down what has moved me along the way, how to be fair, how to have less stress, how to have fun, how to hurt people less, how to get hurt less, how to be a good man how to get what I want, how to have meaning in life, how to be more me. Just words, right? It's a man fumbling around in the darkness looking for meaning in life, a twisted and a crooked generation. They're so lost. The people around us are so lost. They they can't see. They can't see the beauty of who Jesus is. They, They don't have meaning. They're looking for meaning. In the midst of this generation of people, who need to hear about Jesus. The question I have tonight is, do you want to be a person who grumbles and complains, bringing disunity to the church family, holding the church family back like a spiritual handbrake, putting a bowl over the lamp that is the church? Friends, this passage can't be optional tonight. This passage is crucial for every church family, for every believer, because it flows from our justification who we are in Jesus 
to our sanctification being made holy, to our evangelism. So why does he use the word stars in some translations? Stars are lights. Well, because lights are stars in this society that he's writing in were used for navigation, for direction, for leading and for guiding people. And so that's what we're to be. A place that leads and guides people to Jesus. Look at verse 16. How do we do it? We hold fast the word of life. We don't do it by contracts. We don't do it by smoke machines and fancy shows. How do we do it? We do it through the word of God, the word of life. So this should be top of our priority list. People of light. Why? Because we want to see people saved. We want to see people transformed. Young and old. So this is our call tonight. These words really convicted me this week from a man called William Booth. William Booth founded the Salvation Army. He said this. this part of the quotes here, I'll read the full quote. He says, this is our call. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened and to the agonized heart of humanity. Listen to its pitiful, pitiful wail for help. He says, go. Go and stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and to bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstance in the march to publish his mercy to the world. And so, friends, this is the call tonight. Work in, work out what God has worked in you. Don't give in to this problem, this huge problem of grumbling, and instead shine like lights as alternatives because there are dying souls all around us, and there are people marching towards hell tonight. And some of us would rather murmur and grumble than try and see people saved. So in repentance we come tonight. In repentance we lay down ourselves. In repentance we come and we say, Jesus, no more. No more murmuring. No more complaining. No more grumbling. Instead, we want to live for you as people, active members in this church family so that young people and old people, little ones and older ones, will come here and will celebrate salvation in Jesus. So Hill Street Church Family, chapter 1, verse 27, still the same theme that Paul's been picking up. Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So it's a clear sign to them. Lurgantown needs us to implement this passage in our hearts. Our friends and family need, to, need us to implement this in our hearts. So work out what God is working in, so that you may be lights in the darkness. But watch out. Grumbling and questioning will ruin it all.
May God give us the strength and the help to carry out his word.